more time, flock to Wisconsin. It's the place to come uh, to avoid maybe the heat down south. The place where Illinois people can come up here and avoid their, their state going into total collapse. Um, they can come to Wisconsin. And uh, this is the place to vacation and have a good time. But in the wintertime, uh, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, you know, it's kind of the February, March, April pilgrimage of Wisconsinites uh, to go down, uh, maybe to take a week to get a reprieve uh, from the winter time in Wisconsin. And uh, if you've grown up in Wisconsin, you probably have experiences of leaving Wisconsin in the summertime to go down south. One March, my family, uh, growing up, decided to take the plunge and go down south, really down south. Uh, my parents decided one, some, one March for a week, we're going to go to Isla de Mujeres, uh, which is off the coast of Cancun, uh, and it means island of women. Uh, and I was a teenage boy uh, when uh, we were going to go down there, and this sounded like paradise for me, um, Isla de Mujeres. And uh, I was in a Spanish class, and I, you know, my Spanish teacher is from Mexico, and uh, I told her I was going to Isla de Mujeres. She said, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, you're going to have such a great time. It's paradise. I seem to forget uh, many times that my parents, uh, they don't like extravagant vacations, they like cultural experiences. Uh, so when we got there, I realized... Uh, where we were staying in Eli de Mejeres de Mejeres was not on the coast, was not on the beach. It was actually a mile away from any beach, and it was in the middle of the island, and it was not a very pretty location. It was this kind of run-down hotel. Uh, this is my ideas of my parents' cultural experience, and uh, it was kind of ironic that it was called the Island of Women because the bar that was across from the hotel that we were staying at uh, was known for its cross-dressing nights. And so that's the kind of experience I had of uh, fleeing Wisconsin to paradise. Paradise destroyed. That's really kind of what it was. Paradise, not what I was, what, what I was thinking or what it should be. And that's kind of what we're going to see today. We have seen paradise in marriage, in relationships so far, in the Song of Songs. But now paradise is crumbling. The relationship is on rocky ground. And the question arises, will paradise be restored? Will it get fixed? What are the lovers to do? And it really asks questions of ourselves today. In a world that doesn't look like paradise, in marriage relationships that sometimes aren't paradise, what are we to do? What is the answer to paradise destroyed? Let's find out together, shall we? The Song of Songs, we're going to look at it together today. In chapter 5, verse 2 through 6, 3. It's printed in your worship guide. It's also in the Black Bibles on page 562 and 563. Let's pay attention as we look at God's word this morning. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, 
my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than, uh, than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you, that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Distinguish among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water. Bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedeckled with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem." Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the Song of Songs this summer, a song that talks about a beauty of lovers, the beauty of God's design, of designing love in the confines and the covenant of marriage. One thing about the Song of Songs is that it's a song. It tries to engage the senses through poetry. One way it does it throughout the book of Song of Songs, and we see specifically here, is the image of a garden, is an image of their lovers, and is also an image of their love for each other. What a great picture, especially now in summertime in Wisconsin. Gardens. It's amazing how fast gardens just go like this in Wisconsin. And they just are lavish. Aaron and I, we walk by houses in our neighborhood in the wintertime and then in the fall or the spring, and you go, oh, that's pretty ordinary. But then you walk by the house in the summertime, and it's like, whoa, did you know this house was here? Because of the beautiful flowers and the gardens that are just magnificent. Well-trimmed grasses, flowers you never think could grow in this area, 
fruits and vegetables that you think, why? They can grow a pepper. Why can't I? And these people are able to make just lavish things in their backyards and in their front yards that we can see. And that is the picture of these lovers. A beautiful garden with the best fruits, the best vegetables, manicured. It is gorgeous and it engages the senses, smells, and sights, and sounds of birds or bees or whatever might be in the garden. Also, we see that this song is both private and it's public. It's intensely private. It says this is a locked garden, right? A a closed up fountain is my lover. It is only between those two. So it's intensely private. But at the same time, their love for each other and their passion for each other also is observed by others in the sense of their emotional love, their spiritual love, their unity, that others see it. And we see that in the passage where it goes, she speaks, he speaks, others speak. And they see what's happening among the lovers, both the good and as we see in this passage, the bad. So it's a song, it's both private and public, and also it's wisdom. It speaks about us, but it also speaks to us. What are our experiences of love? And it says, how do I act rightly? How do I act godly with this riddle of love? Especially as we see today, as love is starting to fray, where paradise is lost, what should happen? Well, let's look together, shall we? Let's see what it says about paradise being lost. We last left our lovers, and they were in the consummation, the height of this whole book of Song of Songs. They were in love. They were in happily ever after land. And now this enjoyment seems to hit a snag. This is the scene that we see. The scene is pretty graphic in the sense of there's some bad things happening. It seems to be a dream and then she's awake. There's this door, all these things. Is this actually conveying an actual reality that she actually goes out in the street and gets beaten and all these things Well, I think it could have, but I think more than that, this is trying to convey an emotional state of their relationship and where they are at in poetry and in song. Uh, I love to sing Chicago, uh, which is a band of the 80s, of those that don't know that. Uh, And uh, I can sing Chicago songs and Uh, get the lament of the Chicago song, even though I'm not experiencing it. And sometimes I sing it to Aaron, and then I sing it to you guys too. Um, My favorite Chicago song starts like this. She called me up this morning, told me about the new love she found. You know that one? Anyone? Anyone? I I can't sing. So, Um, And then the chorus is, If you see me walking by, and the tears are in my eyes, look away baby, look away. Anyway, so I sing this to Aaron at times, you know, when I feel like something's frayed in our relationship. 
just look away. The tears are in my eyes. Now, I'm not saying that she's found another lover, but it's conveying my emotional state of how I am feeling in the relationship. And this is doing the same. They're missing each other. They're kind of crossing paths in, in their love for each other. You see that she is sleeping. And she is, her heart is awake, meaning her heart is still disquiet. She needs something. She has needs still. But then she hears a knock at the door. It's her lover coming late at night, uh, not the most convenient time, saying, you know, here I am, open to me. You know, can you help me? Can I receive your love? Well, she's, she's not in the mood. She's sleeping. She's busy. And as he asks, please, will you help me? She does not take initial steps towards him. Listen, my garment is off. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to get my feet dirty. My slippers are off. My slippers, I can't find them. I don't want to get out of bed. She doesn't want to take the steps towards him. He's not being considerate for one, coming at a time that's probably not convenient. And she is also saying, listen, this is not the best time for me. I don't want to take this sacrifice for you. Well, she changes her mind. Uh, Maybe that speaks to the stereotype of women, that one minute yes, one minute no, it's just up and down. But as she changes her mind to let her lover in, he's gone. And then there is escalation of the conflict. And the escalation goes up quickly. She goes out searching for him. And it doesn't go well. The watchmen or the police, they come and see this woman out at night and they think maybe she's a prostitute. And what they would do to prostitutes sometimes is they would expose them. They would strip them. But here it's even worse that she faces injustice. She is beaten. And she is wondering, where is her lover? Look how badly this has gone. From a knock on the door to being outside and now beaten. It's a quick change of tone. From the beginning of chapter 5 of let us be drunk with love. Let me be drunk with love. To now what has happened to these lovers. This is a case of missing each other. You want something, your spouse doesn't. And maybe you say, okay, that's how you want to play our relationship. If you don't want to give me something, then I'm not going to give you something in return. And then the relationship can escalate in that. Till it can reach detente. Where you just live in kind of isolation from each other. Not serving each other. Oh, it started with this and then you don't even realize what it was about anymore. Until the frustration and the coldness and the isolation that might be in a relationship. This is the escalation that has happened here. It has gotten that bad. If anything shows us the best, it's the show Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, If anyone's seen that show, uh, they have escalation down to a T between Raymond and Deb's relationship. Specifically the suitcase episode. Uh, where they come home from a vacation and they have a suitcase and they put it on the landing and neither of them takes them up 
it all the way up the stairs. And uh, the suitcase sits there for four and a half weeks. And uh, Raymond expects Deb to take it. Deb expects Raymond to take it. And you can see there in detente that Raymond one day sees that Deb has taken a sweatshirt out of the suitcase and is now wearing it. And then Raymond counteracts by putting cheese in the suitcase to make it smell incredibly bad. So someone will do something until it totally escalates where then they say, fine, I'll take it. No, I'll take it. And then they fight and he's dragging her up the stairs while holding the suitcase. And he says, look, I'm taking it while dragging her up the stairs with the suitcase. It, that's escalation. Paradise lost. What has happened to my lover? What has happened to my, my, my night? What has happened to the man I married? The woman I married? What has happened to I am my beloved and he is mine? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. Reality has happened. See, the lovey-dovey of engagement or early marriage or the honeymoon, uh, that no longer is the motivation. You're no longer motivated by endorphins or discretionary income <laughs> or no kids or jobs with less responsibility. Instead, that endorphins or hormones, that doesn't seem to be the motivation anymore. There are bills to pay. There are kids that take your time. There are jobs that are demanding. And then on top of that, there are years of missing each other and disappointment and there is pain. Wait, wait. Are you saying that I have to serve my spouse? I have to love my spouse even when I don't want to? even when I don't get something in return? Yeah. See, many of you, I, I don't know where your relationships are in your marriage, but maybe it has been like paradise is lost. There are seasons of frustrations, disappointments, rejection. Some of you have experienced that in a very, very deep way in relationships being lost and divorce. You have seen the ugliest parts of what can happen in a relationship. The thing is, I don't think these feelings are just for those that are married. Feelings of frustration or disappointment or rejection just coldness in life. I think this book is primarily written about a husband and a wife, but it also gives a shadow of the bridegroom Christ in his love for us, the church. Whether you are married or not, feelings of paradise lost can be very real. The garden being far away is your reality. I think what does make marriage unique is that marriage puts that reality in front of your face daily. 
Because when you look at your spouse or have reactions from your spouse, you see where you are falling short. And you see the disappointment. And you can see the coldness. It is before you. Right there, mirrored. Which makes it unique in marriage. But I think again, this passage can speak to all people. I do think that John, when he's writing in Revelation, in chapter 3, I think he's referring back to this passage in the Song of Songs. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to them and eat with them and them with me. You see, I think we have to admit where we have missed each other. We have to admit Man, this season of disappointment and coldness and rejection, whether you're married or not married, has built over time. And now the beloved, now the bridegroom is knocking at the door. The question is, are we ones that say, you know what, I need my lover. I can look past what has happened. I am bruised. I am battered. I have faced horrible things. I will finally admit it has gone bad in my life. I need my lover. I need to answer the door. Well, the friends have seen what has happened. The friends are watching. And as they've responded in the past, these Young ladies it might be. It might be the people observing their marriage, whatever it might be. They have watched in optimism. And now, look how they respond. Verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Come on! Beautiful woman among women? You deserve better than this man. You see how he treats you? Why is his love such a big deal? Find another lover. There are so many other guys out there. You don't need him. You see what he puts you through? You see where you are? This is the advice that they give. One thing I consistently tell premarital people that I get together with, if you are going to vent about your spouse to someone else, first you need to talk to your spouse about what's going on. But if you want advice outside of what you're getting in the marriage, if you're going to vent to someone, you better sure you pick the right people to vent to. See, a true friend to vent about your relationship is not going to rag with you about your spouse. They're going to be for your marriage. They're going to ask you questions like, well, what is your part in what's going on? What about his side? What about her side? They are going to be for your marriage, for both of you being together. 
they are not going to just, oh, yeah, you're right. He's just, he's horrible. Forget him. No, they are going to give advice to help that marriage stay together, to know how to speak to that person. That is a true friend. You know, it's a lost tradition. It used to be in weddings, the I do's were just between, you know, nowadays it's just between the husband and the wife. Actually, the I do's in traditional marriages is done by the whole congregation. Did you know that? That is done actually in the beginning that the congregation will be standing and they ask, will you support this marriage? Will you be for it? Now you hear, you know, if anyone holds anything against it, you know, stand up and give objection. Well, it actually was, if you are for this, say, I do. And the congregation or the people would say, I do. What are they saying when they say, I do? What are you saying when you stand up at someone's wedding or you stand up at their wedding? You're saying, I support them. I am for them. I am for this relationship that they're in together. Even if he doesn't feel love for her. He doesn't experience love for her. I am going to remind him of the vows that he kept for her. Even if she does not feel something for him, even if she feels like paradise is lost, I'm going to encourage her of the paradise that they said they were entering into in the vows they had for each other. See, that is true friends. That is someone that stands up at your wedding. That is what they're supposed to do. They are supporting you in your vows when you don't believe it. You know what? That's not just a picture of a marriage in a wedding ceremony. That's a picture of us in the church. My life stinks. There is no hope. I am beaten. I am bruised. Paradise is lost. God is against me. Who is for me? You know what? You still come to church and you might not feel it, but that's when you let the church sing over you. This says, you know, God does love you. He cares for you. You have purpose and meaning. His assurance of pardon is over you. There is forgiveness in your life. So that when you don't feel it, when you're like, ah, he's miles away from you, you can have people tell you the truth. Are those the ones that are speaking into your life? Or others, people saying, you know, there's a lover better than God. <laughs> Come on. You deserve more than this ragtag group of people to hang out on Sunday morning. Come on, money can help. Just add a little fun to your life. Drown your problems. It will get better. No. The church says there is one true lover, the bridegroom, who has come for you and loved you and cared for you that even when you don't feel it, it is true. Let me push back on it, right? Friends that might talk about the church not in the most, the greatest light. Say, Dan, you know what is? The church is just, you're just brainwashing people. You're just telling people something that they don't believe. You should just let people feel what they want and go the way that they want to go. 
Why should you have the church continuing to tell the truth to people when they don't feel it anymore? That's the pushback. This is what I want to say to my friends. Maybe you. How is that working out for you? How does that worldview working out in America? Where you just go where you want to go based on your feelings, even if they're negative. I, I don't know if you know this. You maybe have seen this in the news. We are facing a crisis in America, especially in the Midwest. NBC News went to Dayton, Ohio last week. And they talked to the coroner at Dayton, Ohio. And they walked into the room where there were body bags. 60 of them in one week. 40 of those 60 body bags were from opiate overdoses. 40. 10,000 people, they predict, will die of opiate overdoses in Ohio this year. 10,000 people. That is a crisis, and it's coming here, folks. Let people say what they want to say about this. Let them go the route they want to go. Let them drown themselves in whatever it might be. No, the church should speak and say, there is a lover that will come to you and help you. Whatever emotions that you're in, no matter place you're in, the church should be telling that truth to people. I need that every day. I need that every week. Listen, I come to church on Sunday morning and say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. But I leave and I say, I needed that. To know I am loved by God and people can speak that over me and encourage me and tell me the truth. I need that. You need that. We need that. Because we live in paradise lost. But the church says there is a paradise to be restored. You know, there's a right approach, right? I love this. The bride does not hear from her friends. What does she do instead? This is what she says to her friends. She talks about her lover. He is more radiant than 10,000 men. He is so set apart. His arms are like rods of gold. I mean, talk about a ticket to the gun show. I mean, I want to see that one, right? He is beautiful. I mean, this is a guy that's part of the Avengers team, you know? This is what she's describing. He could be a comic book hero. See, even the struggles that they have, she sees the beauty in him. Bill Acker was talking about this this week in our session meeting, and it's so rich. And she, she lands, not just on that extraordinary vision, but he says, this is, verse 16, this is my beloved, and this is my friend. 
You know, he is radiant. He is beautiful. He is amazing. He is a superhero. You say, he's not a superhero. Look how he's fallen short. Well, for her, he is a superhero. Wives, is that how you see your spouse? Do you see the positive things first or do you point out the mistakes first? I could say the same for husbands. Do you do that for your wives? But Ephesians, it says it equates the man to Christ, you know, and the woman to the church. But when Paul is equating the bridegroom to Christ. Does he mean that all husbands are Christ? No. But what I think he is saying is God is forming in him to be Christ-like. Wives, are you part of that process in helping your husband be Christ-like? Are you seeing that in him? Are you affirming that in him? There are, I can embarrass Erin, she's in junior church, I'll just do it. I love many things about my wife. But what I love about her the most is her affirmation of me, even when I am a jerk. She still affirms me. And I know the things I fall short in, she prays hard for, for me. And there is something, I, I think there is something in a man, something wired in him to want to be respected. And when, when my wife, when Aaron respects me, it is a catalyst to love her with and just a lavishing love. Because I know she sees me for what I could be. For what God is forming in me. And it wants me and drives me to change. And it drives me to love her. And you see, when she talks about her lover like this, you see how now the crowd responds. Six, chapter 6, verse 1. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Meaning we want to be around this guy too, not being his, be our, his lover, but we want to know him, how great he is. We want to be around him. We want to be around lovers like him. We want to be in a relationship like this. It does make me think, how do we as the bride, us the church, how do we speak about our bridegroom Christ? Can you believe the hand I've been dealt? And God doesn't care about me. You see what things I get in life? 
Is that how we speak about our God to others? Our bridegroom about others? Or do we see the beauty of our Lord? How he saved us and shaped us. How he's taken us through hard times to mold us. How he disciplines those he loves. And do we trust in his direction that we speak to others and say, I have been through the valley and I've been through hard times, but I tell you, my bridegroom loves me. He cares for me that he took me through those things. So those that are around you go, I want to know that lover. I want to know him. It closes. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Paradise restored. The garden renewed. I am my beloved's and he is mine. No longer about them individually, selfishly missing each other, but instead they are one. Partners, friends, they are together. I think about trying to make Wisconsin like the Mediterranean or California or the ocean. We've tried to do that in Wisconsin, have we not? 900,000 cubic feet of dirt and sand was moved along Lake Michigan to make what? Whistling Straits. This gorgeous golf course that if you looked at it, you'd say, I am in California. Or I'm in the Mediterranean because of the rolling hills and the lake. You can't see the end of it. Oh, I'm at the ocean. Thing is, I think we treat life like whistling straits. If I move enough dirt... If I do enough work, I can create paradise. If I do enough work in my marriage, if I find the perfect partner, if I find the perfect job, if I find the perfect vacation, then paradise will be restored right here on earth and I can enjoy it and I can be happy. It will be fine. I'm here to tell you, and this word of God is here to tell you, that paradise in this world has been lost. It started with our first parents in the garden, kicked out. They were missing each other. Read Genesis, you can see that. And it escalated quickly. And saying, you no longer can be here. Well, a bridegroom came. And the night before he was betrayed, he entered a garden. 
And he said, God, let your will be done so paradise will be restored. He is the one that selflessly gave his life so that we would be united with him. That we would be able to be back in relationship with God where paradise is. That he drank the cup that we cannot drink. That he took it on himself so that we might be united with him and that we might say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Are you united with that paradise? Are you united with that bridegroom? If you come forward and take communion, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I need this. I need to be united to him because paradise has been lost. And this is the only way that paradise will be restored. This isn't an Emmaus Road table or a Presbyterian table. This is a table for those that trust in Jesus Christ as the bridegroom that saved us, the bride. There's white grape juice on the outside. There's